I have two thumbs, so that must mean something. So off we go. April 7th, 2019, lecture discussion number 59 on the book of Joel. And we're really in Joel 2. I know it doesn't seem like it, but Joel 2 and Ezekiel 38 and 39 line up. And that, of course, leads us to the tribulation and revelation. So eventually you'll figure out how I think. Hopefully not, for your sake. Previously, episode number 58 on as the cliffside turns, or uh, or the bold and the beautiful downtown cliffside. See how I've worked on this? How about the young and the cliffside? Does that mean anything to anybody? How old do you have to be? One person is laughing, kind of. Maybe they're vomiting. I can't really tell. Way back here. Days of our cliffside. I keep going. Peyton Cliffside Place. <laughs> General Cliffside Hospital. This will mean nothing to the non-USA uh, Internet people. They won't have any idea what any of that means as usual. Anyway, previously on lecture discussion number 58, I issued another one of my declarative statements, as is my habit. It went something like this. Time cannot affect omniscience. Let me repeat it. Time cannot affect omniscience. So never, if you can discipline yourself, put time in a position where it is, it is, has subordinated omniscience. Because it cannot affect it. And I got some responses, and I know that I use the usual one. It's a, a, a pretty bold talk for a vitreous, detached, thickened male. That's another joke that no one younger than 50 or outside of the U.S. will think is the least bit funny. In other words, exactly the same as everyone else that has ever heard me. I, however, am undetoured, as you know. So I got this kind of thing. Prove it. If you're going to say that time is subordinate, it cannot affect. I'm, I'm not just saying subordinate. I'm saying it has no impact on om- omniscience. Prove it, it was the response that I got. Prove it, answer me that, dude. That was a prompt. Uh, Give me some kind of evidence. How is it that omniscience is in complete, absolute authority over time? And I kind of sort of did answer that last week, so I'm a little disappointed that it didn't get through. But obviously it wasn't clear. Uh, Or in other words, uh, cliffside normal. So I'm going to repeat the anatomy of the reasoning for those uh, of my... Beloved critics, I guess I should call them, for those who uh, didn't understand why I think it is um, not just uh, true, but beyond dispute, which would make it true. Okay, omniscience is infinite. Let me go through the logic progression. Omniscience is infinite. It has to be infinite. If it's not infinite, it cannot be omniscience. I'll Make that clear, I hope, as we go. Infinity is the defining component of omniscience. Omniscience is not possible unless the consciousness that is omniscient, that has, possesses omniscience, is infinite. So not only is omniscience infinite, but the consciousness that, uh, (coughs) that is omniscient itself is infinite. So I have two components here, not just the fact of omniscience, but the origin of omniscience. The definition of omniscience, as you should know, is knowing all things. 
Jesus Christ says that he knows all things. Revelation 2 through 3. I know your works, he says. If he knows your works, what does he have to know to know your works? How many works do you have? Some of us have less than others. But how many? He knows the works of who? Everyone. How many works is that? You have phones. Start doing the math. I know your works. He says, I am the first and the last. Revelation 1, 17, 1 through and 1, 8. That's, that's infinity. Uh, you have John 19, 28, John 2, 24, John 2, 25, John 21, 17, where Peter says to him, you know all things. Knowing all things means all things, means everything. The movement of every feather, I'm going to use birds, you'll know why in a second. The movement of every feather of on every bird that has ever had existence through all of time, God knows that. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Knowing every bird that falls to the ground, that's a dead bird. What's he know? He knows every bird that has died. What else does he have to know? If he knows every bird that has died, how many birds has died? So far, all of them will die. There's a few that are waiting to die. He knows every bird that falls to the ground. What caused the death of that bird? All of those birds. In order to know the bird that died, he had to know when the bird died. He had to know then what? Why the bird died, how the bird died. He sees them all die. And he says so. Again, Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Let's divert. How many birds are killed by cats in the United States every year? Have you ever looked it up? You have phones. You can do it. Estimates range from the, uh, hundreds of millions to over a billion. Every year. God knows the cats that kill the birds. Every hair, every cell, the subatomic structures of every living cell through all of time of every cat and every bird. So far I've just gotten through cats and birds. I haven't had windows and buildings yet. 350,000 birds are killed by wind turbines every year. And if I become king for a week, I mean a day is not going to be long enough. I got to be, I got to have at least a week, maybe a month. But if I became king, what would I do? I'd tear down every single one of these miserable, noisy, grossly inefficient bird blenders. They are a complete waste of engineering thought really I wouldn't do that I'd tear them all down and then I'd reassemble them and I'd put them in Washington D.C. In the, in the neighborhoods of the politicians that's where I would put them so they have to listen to that next to the idiots that plague the rest of us with these racket producing boondoggles and the only ones who make any money who makes the money from the wind turbines that's right it's the, it's the brothers and the wives and the sisters and the husbands 
of the politicians. They're the ones that get the money and the contracts. It's all patronage. And they get extremely rich. Do they produce much electricity? Is it of any use? No. What do they do? They kill 400,000 birds. Okay, that was a rant. Get rid of the combustion engine, they say. Oh, my gosh. We all starve to death in a month. There will be dead people by the millions. No air conditioning in Nevada. How's that going to work? California, no sewage, no water, nothing. You can't be more dumb than this. This is what the school system is producing. People that think that's a good idea. It's what it is, is mass extinction of humanity. That's what it will be. No food transportation, no food production. You've heard me rant about this before. It makes me mad that people are this evil because they've got to know that this is stupid. And yet they still present it. It's a lie. They present it as a lie. I'm sorry. It's a lie that they present as the truth and they make all of us all pretend it's true. It's not true. And that destroys the morality of the people that listen to it and the morality of the people who say it. Okay, where was I? Omniscience and time. Just consider how much information Jesus Christ remembers. All movement. He remembers all movement, all motion. And time is immanent. Eminent. I emphasize the man so you know that I didn't mean imminent. Immanent. Immanent. It's inseparable from time. Motion is inseparable from time. As you know, time is manifested, displayed by motion, by change, by entropy, by physical processes, physical properties. And all physical properties arise from consciousness. And Christ is the consciousness that arises all physical entities, as John 1, 3. Therefore, time and consciousness have a relationship, as you know. Consciousness observes change. It sees and it hears physical processes that are then converted into intentionality, into meaning. That's what consciousness does. Motion provides evidences of consciousness. And Jesus Christ says, I am the first and the last, the infinite one, the infinite consciousness, the absolute observer. I am the one that began time, and time is inside of me because I am infinite. Therefore, time is subordinate to infinity and or, if you wish, omniscience. It's the same thing. When I say omniscience, I'm saying infinity. When I say infinity, I'm saying omniscience. I hope that made better sense than last week. Also coming across my desk uh, this week was a question from somebody uh, who shall be granted anonymity. And what Jennifer asked for was a referencing of, of Revelation 3.20, the great behold of the Laodicean church. Let me read it again. It's really a pretty good question if, it was, if I have interpreted it correctly. Um, so uh, let me read 3.20 again. Because this is an incredible verse. I, I don't even, and we're going to be going over it over the next few weeks. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears and opens the door, I will come in. That's what he's saying. And this, as we should have come to expect, is ridiculously complex. It's a mysterious statement by the timeless God of creation. If you think you understand this verse, you are likely wrong. And it gets even more difficult. I left off 321. 321 is more difficult than 320. It's ridiculous. The heavy lifting is 320, is Revelation 320. That's the behold. But 321 weighs more, if you wish. So this unnamed questioner, whom we will call Jennifer to obscure her identity, asked, how can Jesus Christ stand at himself and knock on himself? Or if you want to put it this way, how can he knock on the door and be the door? That's what she's asking. And obviously this Jennifer person, who may or may not reside in a barren wasteland, waterless desert, suffocating heat, the incessant drone of wind turbines and heaps of dead birds, which combines to drive the inhabitants mad. Mad, I say. Can't wait for my mail. She doesn't watch this during the right time period, does she? She's always, yeah, she's on, she can't tell time, can she? <laughs> Never mind. The point is, uh, well, let me say this really fast. I'm not sure that Arizona has wind. I know it doesn't have any water. So does it have wind? I don't know. It didn't affect my premise. The point is, yay a point. Jennifer, if that's her real name, has launched us. That's right. She has launched us into what subject? By asking, can he knock on the door and be the door? What subject is this? Absolutely correct. This is quantum superposition versus omnipresence. That's fantastic. Exactly right. Exactly right. Can Jesus Christ, let's ask the question, can Jesus Christ occupy two distinct positions or locations simultaneously? Duh. Like uh, omnipresence is infinite, dude, man. That's obvious. Where else in the Bible does Jesus Christ occupy two distinct locations at the same time? That's where we go next, right? Go and accumulate them all. Let's ask the same question a little bit differently. Can Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, the knower of all things, be inside of time and outside of time at the same time? Does that make sense? I'm trying to make it as clear as I can. That's two, two locations. That's not fair, is it? But I've turned it into just two locations because that's the quantum position. Superposition is two locations superposed. Yes. Well, some will say that omnipresence is infinite. Yeah, there we go. I should say this. I should put this on the board. Can infinite, and you can see how I'm wording it intentionally, um, how do I obscure, opaque question? Can uh, infinite God place himself inside 
of finite time. And I worded that reasonably correctly because finite is inferior, infinitely inferior to infinity. Does that make sense? So what do you think? Can he do it? How does he do it? How do I put infinity into infinity? What's that? Oh, I thought I heard a just a moan from somebody that woke up. No. What's that? Is it? Oh. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> it is uh, omnipotence is what it is, but that's another discussion. You might remember a question from lecture number uh, 57. Is outside of time the same as before time? Or void zero? Remember, the number one lecture was timelessness, void zero. Yeah. People actually like this stuff. Nobody here. But, but there are some out there in the world, 318 of them, that last week thought this was fantastic information. We love them, all of them. I need to know their names. Never mind. If this, this one drops down to 317, I'll be definitely disappointed with that. I need an extra guy. Or a woman. Whatever. I'm, I'm not uh, gender specific. <laughs> I'm trying to fit in. Okay, I'm, I'm not trying to fit in at all, am I? <laughs> I learned that lesson a long time ago. Is outside of time, being outside the time, the same as void zero or timelessness before time was created? Try this one. Is infinite God always in timelessness? As I said, can he be inside of time and outside of time at the same time? Now I'm asking you, can he, is he in timelessness at all times? Oh, that's badly worded. I'm glad you all shook your head and groaned. Because that is intentionally designed to be wrong. Okay. Let's continue. Try this. This is all because of Jennifer and Ralph, isn't it? Can a finite created living being, that's a human, an angel, or an animal, all are described as living beings, can they be placed into timelessness? In other words, can God take you and put you in timelessness? Well, you'd say God can do anything he wants to do. Does he want to do it? Has he ever done it? And if he did do it, what are the consequences of a living being, a physical living being, a living soul, which is the physical body and the soul in one functioning system? Not disemboweled. Disembodied. (laughs) Disemboweled. Take more soda. Not a disembodied spirit, but a embodied spirit and body. Let me be more specific. A living being, body and soul. Can that person, being, be placed into timelessness? Would God ever do that? If so, let's grant the hypothesis or the... The thought experiment, what would be the the consequences of a living body-soul being 
in timelessness. I've asked you before, is there motion in timelessness? Or is there motionlessness? Decide that first. Then apply this condition to a created physical being. There you are in timelessness. There's no motion. What does that mean to you? Is there motion inside of you right now? You have trillions of living cells moving around, having a, good, having a party. Okay? None of them move. What are the consequences of timelessness? And this, of course, is a, is a relative, if you wish, to the Revelation 3, 8, 13, I'm sorry, 13, 8 question. And that is, before the foundations of the earth, the Lamb was slain. So that means Jesus Christ had humanity. And that's why I asked a while back, because the foundations, before he created time, Jesus Christ was slain. Now, what does God mean when he says that? When did Jesus Christ add humanity, was my question. You remember all of that? Another parallel or complementary verse is Jesus at Revelation 3.7, where he says, let me read that, where he says to the church of Laodicea, I'm sorry, church of Philadelphia. This is how he describes himself. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. These things say he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. He said, I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will therefore keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. See, that's amazing. Because remember 3.20, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. That's the other behold. I have two beholds. And they're essentially subsequent. I have behold one where I have, a, he has the keys, he's holy and true, he opens and he shuts, and no one but him can open and shut a door. Behold two is he stands at the door and he knocks and who can open it? Anyone. So those are pretty two different distinct looking beholds. And that's Jennifer's question, if that's her real name. Yes. Oh, you're right. Thank you. 
let Dave be given some kind of thing. We'll make a mark for Dave. If he exists. To be somebody pretending to be Dave, we would never know. We don't know that's Dave. Does anybody really know? I ask kids all the time, when were you born? How old are you? And they tell me. And I say, how do you know? Do you remember it? You believe somebody. Somebody told a person that may or may not be Dave that he's Dave. He doesn't know it. He doesn't remember anything about it. He just believes it. We know that hospitals make mistakes all the time. Evidence one, have you seen me and my brother? I mean, I, there's absolutely no possibility. <laughs> According to our oldest sister, anyway. That's an in-family joke. So I have Revelation 3.7, an open door that no one can shut. Revelation 3.20 is a shut door that anyone who hears the knocking of Christ can open. And it is beyond obvious that Jesus Christ remembers what he said to Philadelphia and what he said to Laodicea. He would, he's the one that said both of these. And they're what? Just, they're only that far apart in the Bible. He would remember being omniscient and the rememberer. So he would know that he has behold door, behold door. So obviously the two are connected. Uh, what, what he says to Philadelphia and what he said to Laodicea are both, if you wish to think of it this way, in the context of the door. They're, they're door-centric. And again, I'm going to say it's beyond obvious that he's done this on purpose. He can't help but do it on purpose. He's omniscient. So what's his purpose for doing this, saying this? As an aside, what is beyond obvious? If we have obvious and you have that which is beyond obvious, what is it that's beyond? We should, we should settle that. Point is, yea, another point, the symbol of the door is prominent in Scripture and it is extraordinarily prominent right here in Revelation 3. And that is an incredible opportunity. And it seems at first glance uh, in Revelation 2 and through 3, to the cursory or to the shallow skimmers, that these are two distinct doors, two particular variant doors. And is that true? Are they different doors? Remember, Revelation 19 also has a door. Do I have one door in three places or do I have three different doors? That's what I'm asking you. And the Philadelphia door is for those who have kept the word of Christ. And therefore, because they have kept the word of Christ, what is the word of Christ? They've kept it. Be a good idea to know what it is because the people that can't keep it get to do what? They get to get go through the open door. And if you go through the open door, what is it that you avoid? What's it say? I'll read it again. Because you have kept my command to persevere. Um, you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. They have not denied his name. What does that mean? What is the church doing today over and over and over again it just won't stop I'm submitting proposing I am saying to you that the church of our age has denied the name of Christ how do they do it 
They don't mention him. And when they do mention him, they separate him from God. They deny the deity of Christ. It is, the, it is a great evil. And he says, because you have not denied my name. And he also says, because you have kept my commandment to persevere. I also then, therefore, if you wish to put it this way, I also will keep you from, keep you out of, it means literally, the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth, the whole earth, the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. Okay, what's the obvious question now? That's the first behold. That's what's happening. Behold one. What's the trial that tests the whole world? Have we ever had a trial that tested the whole world? Or is this the first one and the only one? But if you, to Philadelphia, whoever they are, to the angel of Philadelphia and the people in Philadelphia, they obviously have done something extraordinarily well. They kept his name. They obeyed him. And it seems, like I said, that the Philadelphia door, it seems that they're the same. But let's, and then they may be, they may not be, but let's investigate it. The Philadelphia door is for those who keep the deity of Christ, the name of Christ. And because of that, they shall be taken out of, kept from, the whole world test. And then when he says that, he, there he says, behold, I come quickly. And quickly is a time reference. The creator of time says quickly. How does he define quickly? Is your quickly the same as his quickly? Who has the right quickly? You say my quickly is a better quickly than his quickly. Or is his quickly better than your quickly? He's the one that made time and instituted time, installed time. He's the one that has time inside of him. And he says quickly. When God says quickly, I, what does it mean? How fast is it? Is it fast enough for you? Should he have consulted you? Should he have said, you know, I'm going to come pretty quick. What do you want? That, of course, would be sinful, wouldn't it? He, he would, yes, sir. Absolutely it is. It is clearly a time reference. And so, again, I have the one who made all of time making a time reference. That's a, a significant thing, I believe. And he defines it. The door of Laodicea, the Laodicea is also a behold, as we have discussed. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Behold, I come quickly is now alongside of behold, I stand at the door and knock. So we, again, place the two side by side as I've done. It's a very good thing to do. Find these things that correspond, obviously correspond. They're proximate. They're almost literally side by side in the Bible. Philadelphia has an open door. Christ has opened the door. The Philadelphians walk through the door that Christ has set before them because they kept the word, his commandment, 1 John 3.23, John 8.24. I should put 1 John 3.23 for the Internet audience, all 319 of them. 
1 John 3.23 explains what the name of Christ is, as does John 8.24. But the Laodiceans, they have a shut door. And anyone who hears his voice can open the door. I want to ask questions. Do they have a key to the door? He just said, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one's opens. And they, Laodiceans, have a shut door. Is that good news? You're contrasting an open door with a shut door. Which one has the better door? Anyone who hears his voice, obviously he can speak loud enough to penetrate through the door. How big is the door? How much does the door weigh? How thick is the door? Where is the door? Who's on the other side of the door? Why is the door shut? Why doesn't he open the door? Instead, he knocks on the door. Somebody inside opens the door. How did they get the door open? You're done with those. We move to page nine. I should interject um, Revelation 2.13, where Jesus says to Pergamos, I know where the throne of Satan is. You have to know the the throne of Satan to solve Revelation 3.21, because I have intentionally left 3.21 out. But that helps you understand 3.20. And trust me again, 3.21 is a lot harder than 3.20. The ones who overcome who open the door, who hear his voice, Christ will allow them to sit on his throne, and he knows where the throne of Satan is. So now i got throne side by side, door side by side. I have all of this contrast and comparison. So it's going to be required of us to resolve the throne of Satan. Another quick point, yea, a quick point. As I define quick. Which could be, which, yeah, definitely not your quick. Just as soon is not your soon. If we conclude, as I submit is plainly said, that the Philadelphians are saved out of, saved from, literally out of, is what it says, the trial of the entire world. Again, how many trials of the entire world are there? Somebody gets saved out of it, and they're Philadelphians. Do they actually live in the city of Philadelphia? No. But whoever these people are, they went through an open door because they kept the name of Jesus Christ, which is, again, 1 John 3.23, John 8.24. And they get saved out of something that is a test or a trial for the whole world. Have we had one? Let me ask it again. Have we had a whole world trial? Somebody will say the flood was a whole world judgment. This is not a whole world judgment. It is and it isn't. What's he say? He calls it a test. Who else has ever been in a whole world test? We have Israel in a test. They're not the whole world. But obviously we can go and find the other tests and start putting them together and figure out what the whole world test is for. What's the purpose of the whole world test? It's to save the whole world. How many of the whole world get saved? Anyone who opens the door. Again, how do they open the door? 
If no one can, is it the different door? If, if we again conclude that literally the trial of the entire world, that the Philadelphians, the ones who have the truth of the deity of Christ and hold on to it, they are saved from, that that trial has not happened yet in the history of the world since the Noatic Flood. And then it would, uh, those who, um, who do not get saved from, who do not go through the open door, they would seem to be left to subject, to be subject to this time of testing that is coming. Jesus returns as king, we know that, to consummate his kingdom. He consummates his bride, but he also comes to consummate his kingdom. He does it after a seven-year period, or what we also refer to as the 70th week of Daniel, Daniel 9.24. And it is called the 70th week. It is called the tribulation. In Jeremiah 30, verse 7, it is called Israel's or Jacob's trouble. That is the trial. And the Philadelphians go through an open door instead. When do they do that? How many are there? Does the Bible discuss this open door? This out of trial thing? Anywhere else? Absolutely it does. People disagree with me. Doing my best to help them. Those of you who do not have uh, an understanding, you, you have a different view of Revelation 3.10. I know how you get, it, get to a convoluted one, and I'll discuss some of it here in a minute. But boy, oh boy, seems pretty hard because, again, he calls it this prophecy back in 1.3 of Revelation. If Revelation 3.10, the hour of trial, is Jeremiah 3.37... Ah, say it again. Boy, I'm having a tough time. If Revelation 3.10 is the hour of trial of Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble, if those are the same, the hour of trial, time of Jacob, Israel's trouble are the same, and I submit it's the only logical possibility. So how does that, if the tribulation is, if the Philadelphians are saved out of it, what's the meaning now and the impact on the Laodiceans. They've got a door. It's not open. They didn't go through an open door. They have a shut door. They have the door upon which Christ knocks. One aspect shared by the Philadelphian door and the Laodicean door, one that is in common, is that both do something. What do both do? One is open and no one can close it and people go through it. And what happens to those people that go through that door? What is it that happens to them? They are clearly what? Saved. How about the anyone who opens the Laodicean door? What happens to him? Saved. But he's where? He's past the open door. He didn't make it through that door, did he? He's got a different door. But where is he? He's in the worldwide testing. So there's a big deal. That's why I've always said to the people that tell me, well, I'm going through the tribulation. I said, well, 
Read, uh, read Revelation 3, 20. Might not be a good plan. But you can do it. And God bless you because you get a chance to open a door. What are the theological statements being made here? I would tell them, you, it's a kind of an old joke of mine, you can have any view you want, and then God will go ahead and give you the view that you have. So if you want to go through the Philadelphian door, then you can say, hey, I'm a Philadelphian, and I get, you get your jersey and root for Philadelphia, or you can root for Laodicea. One of you get to go through a door, the other one has to open a door, and the timing is different, obviously. One is before the worldwide test, the other is after. So you identify the worldwide test as uh, the time of Israel's trouble, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Then you understand the consequences. But one aspect that is shared is that each door is a door of salvation. Those who go through it are saved. The keys are the keys of salvation. That's Revelation 1.8. Christ is the judge. He has the keys. The one who has the keys is the decider, the judge of who lives and who dies. That's him. And there can be no dispute. Jesus Christ is himself alone the door of salvation. He's the only one that saves. There is no universalism. It is exclusionary. There is no other door. I know there are billions of people who believe otherwise. It isn't true. Why isn't it true? Why can't there be hundreds and thousands of ways to get to God? How many gods are there? One God, one salvation, one salvation means. That is not popular. That will get me banned from tube face and all the rest of the banning places. Because they think it's hate speech. It's not hate speech. It's love speech. If I care about them, I want them to be saved. There's something, you know, in your Lord's Prayer. Please forgive those who have sinned against me. Absolutely. I want everybody that hates me and has hated me and has thrown rocks at me uh, to be saved. So then I can do what? See, I told you so. No, that, that won't be what I do. But it may just... Point being is that we should not be rooting for the destruction in hell of the enemies. We need to be like David who loved the ones who tried to kill him. Is that easy to do? No, it's not easy to do. But we want none. I see the hands. The hands have gone up in the back telling me the time is very difficult now for me. Yes, go. Quick. Got to go. Do the doors have walls? That's an excellent question. He's asking whether or not you can go around the door. And I think I just answered that. <laughs> There's always somebody with a ladder, isn't there? Yeah, we call them the universalists. Or the Presbyterian. Never mind. Anyway, don't do that. Wow, that'll be fun, too. He has the key to salvation. He is the key. What is being said in these two passages is incredibly complicated. I haven't even touched them. And anyone who hears him knock, they will be granted to sit with him on his throne and wrestle with that. You won't be the first to wrestle with that. He puts you next to him on his throne if you hear him knock. Is it a good idea to be listening for the knock? It really is. i got to hurry now. And me hurrying is never pretty. I'm going to give you a list of stuff 
that is in this book of Revelation. The keys of David. We just covered them. Keys of David. How much more is there? Oh, my gosh. I'll number them just because it will help me. There's doors here. The doors. Not the rock group. The three of them. There's three of them. The door symbol. The thrones of Satan and Christ. I have thrones of Satan. I have thrones of Christ. And he places them just like he does the door in contrast. Uh, I have seven angels. These guys are really something special. We'll cover that hopefully in a little bit here if I can get to it. I have Antipas. Who is this? Why is he in this book? Christ brings him up. I have Balaam. Balaam by himself is a year. Just dealing with Balaam. I have Nicol Laetines. How do I spell it? Oops, not two L's, one L. Nicolaitans. And there's, he mentions them twice. What do you think that means? He says, Nicolaitan, I hate the deeds and I hate the doctrines. What's the obvious questions there? Then we got Jezebel to deal with. What do we got, eight? Jezebel. That's a year-long study. Ahab and Jezebel. The harlot. I have the synagogue of Satan. Where I have Jews that aren't really Jews. Who are Jews that aren't really Jews? He says about Jezebel, I will kill her children with death. Who are the children of Jezebel? What's the difference between killing her children and killing her children with death? Who else has children? Abraham does. So I have Abraham, the children of Abraham, and the children of Jezebel, and the synagogue of Satan. Who do you think is in the synagogue of Satan? The children of Jezebel. And he will kill the children of Jezebel with death. What what death is he killing them with? Second death. Very good. Okay. Let's see. I have hidden manna. I have a new name. Oh, sorry, a white stone. New name. We get new names. He has a new name. And the book of life. And I have the new Jerusalem. When we get through with all of those, we will understand two chapters partially in Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3. All of these individually are a study of months as a unit. They're years and years. We don't have that kind of time. But we'll do something. Yes, thank you for for participating. These are the subjects of the prophecy that is Revelation 1, 3, and Revelation, therefore, 1, 2, and 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3. There, there's a simple list of it. It's not, not all of it. How many of you already turned in your papers on the white stone? 
It's an incredible thing. The new manna. I'm sorry, the hidden manna as opposed to the not hidden manna. Thrones of Satan. Who's this guy? In order to understand the prophecy of Revelation 1, 2, and 3, this is where we have to go. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Who, who spoke all of that? Christ said all of that. You think it's important? Or do you just go past it? We don't care. Give me a sandwich. Blessed is he who reads, which if, if you're blessed, if you're the one who reads this and you understand it, you're blessed. What if you don't read it and you don't understand it? What are you? Are you cursed? No, you're just, what's the word I want? Rhymes with dumb. Why do you want to be this? Why do you want to be in the public school? Never mind. Have wisdom. Pursue wisdom. Be wise about Scripture. Why? Your children depend on you, those that have children and grandchildren. If you don't know your Bible, your children are going to be run over by a bus in this world now. It's worse than it's ever been. Atheism is exploding. I told a guy the other day, your generation, I said, my generation fought against and killed communists. Your generation is embracing and voting for them. Welcome to the new America. It's incredible, the evil that is coming. And we're on the front lines now, and we're coming down the stretch. We'll get an open door. Again, he who created and began time said this, the time is near. He didn't say that just as an off comment. It's never happenstance with omniscience. Near is also a time and distance concept. In this context, the time of the prophecy of the seven churches is near. It's close as God of time defines near and as he defines quickly. As an aside, God also defines time. He's the one that gives us the definition of time. Time means what God, what Jesus Christ says it means. His consciousness has authority over our consciousness He's the one who actually knows what time it is. Therefore, the answer to the song, does anyone really know what time it is? No. We don't know. We don't know. We merely think we know what time it is. He's the one that really knows what time it is. Anybody know when time began? Were you there? Okay, before I select something from the list, I've got to really go now. Probably ought to lay out the traditional commentary on the seven churches. Essentially, there's two tracks. It's a railroad metaphor. Stay with me. One track says it's the uh, OBL track. One drawn track says, and the other one's going to uh, Fairbanks. One said this is the only address. This this prophecy is only addressing the seven existing churches in Asia Minor at the specific time that Christ spoke it, which is between 30 and 70 A.D closer to 30, and that there is no future prophetic fulfillment of this prophecy. That's one view. That's track one. Locomotive uh, 28 or 24 or 2504. And this, in my opinion, is to be rejected outright based on the words of Christ in Revelation 1-3. Blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of this prophecy. If it's only specific, there's no fulfillment, only specific to that time, and there's no... Future prophetic fulfillment, 
then it can't be a prophecy. And he calls it one. So I'm not going to argue with God. But that view contains and limits Revelation 1 through 3 to the first century. And it's commonplace. It's overwhelmingly common. Track 2 assigns periods of times and ages to each church. And I don't have time to write it out, but if I did, the first, for example, would be Ephesus, and that's given typically between 30 A.D. and 100 A.D. And then the last one would be Laodicea, and they say that's 1900 to the present. And all the rest of them fill in. Smyrna is 10 to 100 to 313 A.D., Pergamon 313 to 600, Thyatira 600 to 1517, Sardis 1517 1648, Philadelphia 1648 to 1900, Laodicea 1900 to now. That's what they say. And who am I to argue with they? They look so smart. Actually, to be fair, track two makes far more sense than track one. Track two is at least a prophetic analysis, but neither, in my opinion, and I have the most humble of all the humble opinions, neither track one or track two is assuaging to me. It's not satisfying. Neither one of them is satisfying to me. For example, it is obvious to myself that the Philadelphian church exists in this time period. I think i got a whole room sort of full of people who are Philadelphian, who believe that Christ is God, and who have kept that, and who will go through the open door. So Philadelphia is now. It's current. It's extended into 2019. I can easily make the case that Philadelphia terminates at Revelation 4.1, and I'll do that. And if I'm right... Give me a, a huge dub in. Then the structure of track two, uh, the proponents is uh, that uh, track two uh, is positioning. It's not precise. In other words, the churches are commingled and overlapping, and that raises the obvious question: If Philadelphia exists today, what's the obvious question? Who else exists today? Does Ephesus exist today? Smyrna, Pericum, Thyatira, Sardis, they all exist today. One does, do they all? Are all seven churches represented in 2019? Clearly, this is a sevenfold prophecy and it is a subsequent progression. It is successive. Or is it concurrency? Think prison terms. That helps you. I proposed a while back that Matthew is providing important assistance with respect. Matthew 13, the parable, seven parables, important assistance with respect to this sevenfold prophecy of Revelation 2 and 3. And for today, I suggest we take particular notice of Revelation 3.10. I will keep you from the hour of trial, the whole world testing. There's a time of testing of the whole world, followed by a time of whole world kingdom, the messianic kingdom. We know that's going to happen. We know that I have a time of testing, and at the end of that, I have a time of kingdom. So we know there's at least two times here, two periods. Which is the next question then. If I know I've got at least two periods, what do I got to ask next? How many other periods do I got? Ages, times. This is a sevenfold prophecy. It's a message given to sevenfold churches. Trying to hammer it in there. Lastly, finally, the favorite word at Cliff Sign. Jesus Christ gives us two things that he hates, and he says it twice in the sense that he says both of them. Why does he say twice? Whenever Christ says twice, what do you think? 
Oh, it's probably an accident. Why doesn't he left a third thing he probably hates too? He hates the deeds and he hates the doctrine. What do you what do you think the deeds are? We're going back to Proverbs, isn't it? Seven things that Christ hates. What's, what are the deeds of these guys? Who are they? The Nicolaitans. Do they exist today? Absolutely they do. Do you know some? I'll guarantee it. Christ hates them. Their deeds, sorry, and their doctrines. Hates their deeds. What is the doctrine of the men and, and women that he hates? Would that be good information? Be good for your kids to know that? There's a time of testing of the whole world followed by a time of kingdom. Sevenfold prophecy, seven angels, seven churches. Hates two things. Obviously, the Nicolaitans did not keep the word of Christ and denied his name. And I think their deeds are clearly killing and murder. You have churches that, that are supporting killing and murder. They do it every day. He hates that. Doesn't hate them. Again, two Nicolaitan references. Is that there's two comings of Christ. There's a flood and a post-flood. There's a flood judgment and a tribulational judgment. And Antipas, my faithful martyr, who's that? Why did the Lord God Almighty place Antipas alongside the throne of, God, of Satan? Where else in the Bible is Antipas mentioned? Anybody got a Sunday school class on Antipas? Coloring book that has Antipas in it? Anybody got that? Anybody ever hear of Antipas? How long have you been going to church? Don't we sing songs about Antipas? Christ mentions him by name. One place. That's pretty important knowledge to find out who he is. Finally, really finally, angels follow us everywhere we go. They're in every church service. I have got all, Hebrews 12:22, Hebrews 1:14, Matthew 18:10, 1 Corinthians 11:10, Ephesians 3:9 through 10. Angels follow us. I have angels following these churches. They are in these churches. They go where the churches go, and they stick with them. Who are those seven angels? Why do they do that? That's the end of this. Congratulations. Most of you did the same as Riley.